The story is, is, is that um, in the Theravadan tradition, the story is, because in the Mahayana tradition it looks a little bit differently, but in the Theravadan tradition, the way it goes is, is that after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was sitting and reflecting on the unbelievable subtlety of what it is that he had realized and, and thought, you know, I can't do it. I can't actually teach people what this is about because people are not going to get it. You know, it's too subtle. It's not, I, I don't want to do it. And so Brahma Sahapati, the Brahma in the Brahma realm, the king of the Brahma realm, heard in his mind's eye the Buddha's thought and came to the, to, in front of the Buddha and, and said exactly what you heard these words to say. Please, for those who have but little dust in their eyes, please speak on the Dhamma. So in a Theravadan monastery, this is the traditional invitation for um, anybody to give a Dhamma talk, is to recite the words of Brahma Sahampati before the Buddha on that time when he was deliberating whether or not he should teach. For those who have but little dust in their eyes, please speak the Dhamma. Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asamasambhutasa Buddhang Dhamang Sangang Namasami so if you're not that used to Theravadan monastics, um, this chanting is an introduction to the Dhamma talk. And what this is meant to be is a, a signal to pay attention in a particular way. So this is a little bit different than kind of hanging out on the corner and chit-chat. And, and the reason why it's different is because there, there is a, a tremendous possibility that when listening to reflections on the Dhamma, an opening can take place where there's a very deep insight and a new way of relating to experience. So the possibility for waking up in hearing is there. And so for it's that reason that we set it up so that you know people are um, sitting up. There's a kind of dignified, relaxed, upright way of sitting. And that the, the, uh, the attention is meant to be so that your attention is very much focused on your own body suffused with awareness. So rather than grab hold of me with your eyes or with your ears, what is really important is that 90% of your attention is inward. It's in your own awareness of your body and your own movement, subtle movements of mind. And when your attention is suffused through your body, I don't know if it felt like that for you, but for me, just a few minutes of standing with that kind of deliberate attention, my whole body was warm and vibrating and alive, and there was a lot more subtle sensations that I was aware of. And so then when attention is suffused through the body in that way, you can be very responsive to something that resonates with you as being true. Because your body will tell you. There'll be a kind of relaxation and opening and a... Ah, your body does. And when you listen to that, you can trust it. 
Your body is not going to deceive you. But sometimes you hear things and there's absolutely no register. And there's no need to try and grab hold of it and figure it out with your head and try and make it work for you. Just leave it. Let it go. And sometimes what happens and you go, no. You know, there's this kind of tightening or, or, or a, a condensation around the breath or a kind of shortening of the spine or a, a gripping. And there's a pulling away from. It's like, no, this does not fit. It doesn't resonate. And sometimes that's an indication just, you know, that this is actually correct. It's not something to pay attention to. And sometimes it's an indication that you are into very interesting territory because you're touching your own resistance. Because something touches very deeply and you don't want to go there. So learning how to discern the subtlety of no whether the no is a somatic response based on full awareness or whether it's a somatic response based on resistance takes a level of sophistication that is worth cultivating. Because when we have a somatic response that we can trust, we know when we hear something, whether it's something that is absolutely not something that we need to follow, or whether it's something that warrants more attention because it's into territory that's scary, that takes us into territory or material that we don't want to go because we don't want to feel what is there. Now, I don't know how many of you are living in community or living in relationship or living in partnership, but I know for myself that when I was living in community, it was an absolute quagmire of how do you figure out with feedback that you're getting from people whether the stuff that you're hearing is stuff that you need to reflect on because it's related to you or whether it's stuff that is their stuff that's coming at you. And when I began to get a feeling for a somatic response that would indicate that there was something there that I needed to investigate or a somatic response that let me know, clear slate, this is nothing to do with you, then I had a lot more confidence and a lot less anxiety in the relationships that I was navigating. Because I had a way of measuring what was what, without it just being loops in my own cognitive processes that didn't have any other feedback mechanism in them. And so for me to develop a somatic sounding board between feedback which was true or true and colored or completely colored meant that I could feel much more confident to be relaxed and attentive and appropriately responsive. It was huge. It was not a small thing. So learning how to listen is profound in terms of our coming into right relationship with ourselves and coming into right relationship with everybody we know. Because whether we're in partnerships or living in community or, you know, we've got people that we're relating to all of the time. And so we need to be able to hear feedback but not swallow it. And learning how to do that is really an art form. 
And so this whole chanting thing is a kind of signal. You know, this is not street corner chit-chat. That's the intention. So let's see if we can suffuse the body and mind with attention in a way that we can maximize the possibility of being present if there's something that opens up that really resonates. Or that we can begin to know the subtle differences that are present if what we're hearing is not for us or whether what we're hearing is touching into something that is scaring the out of us. It's also for me, you know. This is not just a time for me to spout opinions about what I think and what I believe and how I feel and my politics and all the rest of that. This is actually an opportunity for me to speak in as clear a way as I can with the sole purpose being waking up. That is the purpose. And so there's a little ritual that we do in order to remind both of us that that's the relationship that we're in. It's special. How many times are we sitting in a situation where the sole purpose of the communication is to support waking up? And so it's for that reason that a tradition emerges to help create context where that can be accentuated. And then sometimes these things become solidified and ossified, and we forget the original meaning, and we lose touch with why we're doing this, and then we just do it because that's what you do in order to be in the group. And it loses vitality, it loses life force. Now, I speak extemporaneously. It's extremely rare that I plan a talk, and I use my own personal material of my own life experiences as ways of illustrating what it is that I'm talking about. And so there are times, there have been times, when I move into personal material in a way that is not useful. Please do not believe a single thing that I say. Listen with your body. And let your body be the deciding factor as to whether what you're hearing is worthy of reflection and contemplation or not. One of the traditional frameworks that's really prevalent in a monastery context is taking the refuges and the precepts. And in a lot of the lay groups that I've been to, it's not so prevalent unless the lay group that I've been to is connected to a monastery. And so taking the refuges and the precepts again is not about being goody-goody Buddhists. You know, it's not about punching in your blue card and getting, you know, marks on it so that you're signed, sealed, and delivered and part of the club. You know, taking the refuges and the precepts is about remembering that our mind essential nature is about being awake. And that when we remember that and, and, and bring that into our life as a priority, it changes the way we relate to things. So the refuges are creating a context that tether us into a field of blessings and goodness, which is enormously more vast than the personal circumstances of our own individual life. It tethers us into the quality of waking up to the pristine knowing of the mind, which is infinite. 
It's boundless. It's timeless. It's ever-present. It has always been there, and it will always be there. And there is nothing that you could ever do that would in any way diminish the possibility of waking up to one's own nature in that way, to knowing what that deathless, unborn, unfabricated mind is. There's no action that diminishes the unfabricated. However, there are actions which diminish our capacity to access it. So the refuges tie us into something which is just huge and timeless and ever-present and not particularly Buddhist. You know, the awakened mind, I don't know that the Buddhists have a monopoly on that. Some like to feel that they do. (laughs) I'm quite sure. (laughs) I would argue otherwise. So the truth, you know, the Dhamma, the refuge of the Dhamma, obviously there are many layers to these things, and we could spend a long time talking about that. But the truth is about not only the scriptural teachings that have come through, not only what the Buddha said, which is a vast collection of tremendously useful and very clear maps and tools to work with what we're dealing with, but it's also the truth of what's arising in the present moment. And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how Buddhists will have a monopoly on that, you know. And then the refuge in the Sangha, okay, so traditionally the Sangha was described as the Sangha of monks and nuns. And in the United States, because it's the United States, the Sangha means two people who sit together and meditate. (laughs) And the monastic Sangha has gotten kind of conveniently um, sidelined into some kind of uh, archaic dinosaur that, that most people have no relationship with in any kind of a meaningful way. So we're like the had beens, you know? And yet, my experience is, is, is that for all of the challenges that were present in the monastery, there is a potential that's possible in a monastery that I have never seen in a lay community. That's just strictly lay community. So the Buddhist definition of Sangha is monks and nuns. And then the Buddhist definition of an assembly is, is a collection of monks and nuns and lay people. And he used to refer to it as the fourfold assembly. But we're out of binary definitions of male and female. And we're gone beyond just monks and nuns. We've got priests and people on 37 precepts and eight and a half precepts and three and a half precepts. And, and so for me, what I feel is needed is moving into a manifold assembly where everyone is just simply welcome independent of the precept level that they have and the gender that they have and the orientation that they have. They're just welcome. It's just a safe space and everyone is welcome. But the manifold assembly does not sideline the monastics as a had been, you know? But neither does it put us in the place of being the superior authorities on everything in life that is here to tell you what to do, you know? But the Sangha then creates a field of blessings that represents and is the embodiment of awakening as a community together. And my own personal sense is is that what's needed in our contemporary society as we've moved through a traditional society to a 
modern society to a postmodern society, as we've navigated industrial revolution and technological revolution, is, is that the community needs to become the center of the path from which the spokes of the eight-field path manifest. It's our connection to right view is our connection to our community. Our connection to right speech is our relationships with our community. And so rather than the community being a sub-aspect of the eightfold path, it becomes the center point. And that helps tether us and begin to do the work of, of healing the fractures that somehow are emerging in this industrial world with virtual reality as the kind of ethos that we're living with. We're not looking at each other's faces. We're looking at each other's texts and Facebook profiles. You know. So how do we switch that into a kind of community basis where the community is the center point of a path? It takes some doing. This is not a small project. This is not a weekend project, a weekend workshop. You know, Enlightenment for a weekend. So we've got refuges, we've got community, and then there's the precepts, you know? So I don't know what it's like now in this community or for the people who are practicing contemporarily, but I know that when I was starting to meditate, the idea of morality was sort of like a dried-up prune, you know? It had absolutely nothing in it that was life-serving and nourishing. It was everything opposite of what you wanted to do, which was free and, and, and spontaneous and and choosing what you felt yourself to be and, you know, all those kinds of stuff. But in a classical sense, morality is depicted as the flower that's on the shrine. You know, it is resting in its own natural beauty. And so when we remember that that's what morality is bringing us to, a quality of inner radiance that connects us with our own natural beauty, it releases us from this dried-up prune kind of horrible sense of nothing that's life-affirming in it into something which is actually very liberating. The liberation to come into the radiance of who we actually are so the refuges and the precepts creates ground, it creates context, it creates a framework. And in that is the ability to begin to contemplate what is happening right now, the truth of the way things are right now. And we can begin to see that there's a pattern that can emerge between the movement towards stuff which is gratifying senses and gratifying our desire to be somebody important and have positions of influence, or just to get out, you know, get, get me out of here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to feel these things. And the movement towards responding to what is with a heart that is present, attentive, and caring, interested and compassionate. So we've got hindrances of greed, hatred, and delusion that pull us in a direction of I want and I want it now or get me out of here, I don't care, whatever. 
And how can I show up for this? How can I bring my life force into what's emerging right now and meet it, respond to it? How can I do that in myself? How can I meet my feelings of hopelessness or despair? How can I meet the feelings of feeling totally overwhelmed or very confused or not having a clue in the world which direction is up or if I will ever know which direction is up? How can I meet it with the immediacy of right now, right now, right now? How can I touch it right now with a heart that is open and responsive and caring and interested and not solidifying the thoughts that I have into an idea of who I am? So there's one whole pattern of being in this world, which is the movement towards gratification of sense pleasures, the movement towards the gratification of one's own desire to be and to become and to have power and to have influence and to do it no matter what the consequences are. And then the recognition of how terribly unsatisfying this living this way actually is, how hollow and how empty And no matter how much one gets, it is never enough. Ajahn Amaro was having a conversation with one of the Rockefellers. And I can't remember exactly how it all went. But the gist of it was is that he, not Ajahn Amaro, but one of the Rockefellers were saying, yeah, just a little bit more. If only I had just a little bit more, then it would be enough. Now, I'm not a Rockefeller. You know, in the lifestyle that I live as an alms mendicant is sort of like the opposite extreme polarity of the way that lifestyle is as I imagine it. But I am constantly having to see in my own life the desire for a little bit more security or a little bit more safety or a little bit more sense that there's going to be enough food offered through the week that this is going to work for me or a little bit more. And for me, it isn't translated into my own circumstance, you know. If I had a little bit more robes, you know, I was telling Ayatataloka, she was on the retreat, This, this, uh, I, I was asking if there was a, a, a robe in the nun's robe store, because I said, one of my robes is about to enter hospice. <laughs> <laughs> And she was saying, yes, you know, the kind of robe that you were wanting is very popular, and I don't think there are any in that store, you know. So I was thinking, okay, so then my mind was trying to figure out, well, how can I make one or do or make do, you know, what can I, how can I configure it so that it's going to work? Now, it's not to say that we turn into a mashed potato and we don't take care of our own needs. And certainly, you know, having a robe that's not in hospice is not maybe an excessive wish, you know. But the idea is to do with, well, how much of the hankering after security is keeping me from actually appreciating how much I have You know, that I have enough robes, that I, my body is covered adequately, that I have eaten well, that there is shelter that I'm living with. The shelter is safe enough. It's not perfect, but it's safe enough. And so our minds tend to focus and fixate on the thing that's not okay or not enough or how we can make it better. And that's part of the reason why in a Western society the, the magnificence of the developments that we have, have made that there's all kinds of stuff that is possible that just simply wasn't possible. But it also has to do why there's this incessant sense of insatisfactoriness. 
It's never good enough. You know, we can be sitting in a space and our mind focuses on the piece of dust that's in the corner and just totally obsesses on it, you know. Or we're sitting as, as a human being that has an aspiration to wake up and we focus on the one thing that we did that might have been a little bit untoward, unkind, not thoughtful enough. We focus on it and grab hold of it like a rockweiler, sink our teeth into it and loop as if somehow the more we loop is going to somehow sort it out. Again and 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 again. And it's like it does not release by looping through our cognitive functions the thing that we are obsessed about that feels unsatisfactory. So what is needed is to constantly remember that our basis is tethered to goodness. Our aspiration is to wake up. Our minds are essentially pure. The Dhamma is present here, in the present moment. It's not there. And then, and when we've done five three-month retreats, or been able to be with this particular teacher on this retreat, it's right here. And our own goodness is right here, too. I was staying at a Baigiri for six months or so, and there was a one of the one of the people there was one of my friends, and so you know we were in. I was sharing and helping with her and her practice, and I remember, you know, getting a sense of the kind of stuff that she was dealing with. And I asked her to do a particular practice, and she looked at me with the kind of disgust that you would expect from somebody who'd just been asked to clean out the pit toilet without any gloves and without a shovel, you know by hand. And what I'd asked her to do, what I'd asked her to do was to reflect on her own goodness as a deliberate and conscious practice. In Asia, it's classic. You know, in some cultures, they've got good karma books where they take notes And any time they do anything of significance, like bring food to the monastery or help somebody in need or take care of somebody in any kind of a way that was really a deliberate act of kindness, they write it down in a book. And we think, oh, that's really weird. You know? There's like no way I can imagine ever doing that. But then when they're sick, they take out the book and they read it. You know? When they've experienced grief, and loss, they take out the book and they read it. When they're on their deathbed, the family takes out the book and reads it so that a person's mind is brightened by the many acts of caring and kindness and generosity over a lifetime. I mean, to me, this is tremendously intelligent and very skillful. And I think there isn't anybody I have met who would be in harm's way from doing this, you know. But it's just not part of our culture. It's not part of our framework. We see no reason of doing this. There's never been a suggestion where we've heard of this before. And yet we have got to be tethered to our own goodness, to know that that is our essence, not as an idea, but as something that we can relax into, 
we can rest into that. We can trust it. Not as a way of condoning the stuff that's not okay, but as a way of giving us courage to find another way that is okay. Now, anybody who sat for more than a half an hour on a meditation cushion knows that occasionally it's not so rosy. Occasionally. It moves away from bliss. Absolute, complete, exquisite, infinite, unbounded emptiness and bliss. Occasionally. And if we don't have ourselves tethered to our own goodness, we don't have the resource to meet the challenge of what it is that we're dealing with. And when we are tethered to our own goodness, it gives us the foundation to be able to move into these places that are open and focused and still and silent and empty. When we are able to see the nature of things in a clear way, we're not confused, we're not identified. And taking the experience that we're having to be who we are, what we are, Identifying as this is me and this is mine. It is nature. It's nature arising in nature. So our goodness helps us stay open and gives us the foundation to touch into the truth. And our goodness gives us the courage to be with the truth. And then sometimes life is just a And things hit the fan, and it's like, you know, when it rains, it (laughs) You know? And I don't know how you got there, or what the circumstances is, but it just looks horrible. And in a circumstance like that, it's really easy to opt out for the old habit of fear, freak out, contract, aversive, separate, right back into the dung heap. And so it takes an unbelievable caring and clarity to know that the dung heap is only going to be a dung heap. The dung heap is not going to change by diving into it. And to keep one's attention focused in something that might be another way. You know, and depending on what the circumstances is, depends on what we have to open up to. And sometimes we're not dealing with things that are cozy and comfortable. You know, this is like, you know, rough stuff. You know, people brutalized by the police during the eviction in Occupy. You know, where their health has been devastated. You know, their psyches have been totally traumatized. You know, we're not talking about sitting on your cushion and dealing with an existential crisis. You know, life isn't splintered. And the tendency of turning that into, well, everything is terrible, or I'm terrible, is a really real option when there isn't a support system and a fabric to help remind you not to go that way, that there are other choices. And that there's the love and the support and the interest to help each other make these other choices. But what I'm experiencing myself and what I see happening with so many other people is that we've got individual warriors in an isolated battlefield trying to navigate war 
without the resources internally and without the community externally to begin to touch some of the stuff that is emerging as a result of all of this stuff. There's no way. So we have to come back to our own conviction of what's happening right now and what do I know to be true and to begin in a little way to make the steps to move towards the light and to not dive back into the dung heap. Now, in some circumstances, when the trauma is at a certain level, it's like, you know, trauma work is its own particular thing. It requires skill to touch that in a way that allows it to release. It's not a joke. And it's not just about sitting forever in a cushion and trying to figure it out. Sometimes with this kind of stuff, sitting is the last thing that you need, you know. So there are circumstances where the heat is absolutely on, you know. And everything is at stake. And still there's the choice, you know. Where do we place our attention and what do we value? And what are the consequences of that? So that this kind of being tethered to one's goodness is not a disconnect from the reality of our own circumstances. It's not, you know, punching in this blue chip card and saying we're goody-goody Buddhists and this is going to be the thing that's going to carry us. It's the willingness to reflect and touch on the quality of a mind that is awakening, that has the potential to awaken, that that can be one's aspiration. And so whatever it is that has happened, you know, the chaos of a community that's been vindictive towards its own members, you know, a police situation that has brutalized people that are trying to create another voice in the society because what's happening doesn't make any sense at all. Or individual people who are trying to speak up and say, abuse is not okay, I don't accept it, and they're demonized. And their life is a chaos as a result. We can go back into these holes of fear and just trying to protect me and who I know. But that puts us right back into the same place that we have been trying so hard to get out of. It doesn't work being there. And yet with the kind of fear and the, and the overwhelm and the unknowingness that we have to navigate, it seems absolutely out of our depth. And sometimes correctly so, it is out of our depth. But being out of our depth does not mean that we have to abandon goodness, our own goodness, and the potential for waking up, and the potential to stay committed to waking up, independent of how challenging the territory is that we're having to walk. When our practice begins to touch into a goodness that's beyond right and wrong, not condoning wrong, but beyond right and wrong, then we're touching into a whole other level of freedom and a whole other level of what is possible and how it is possible to be in this world and to live and to respond. This level of touching in is a level of touching in where there's a deep-seated relinquishment and cessation of the grasping of pleasure and the pushing away of displeasure. And in this, there is a new freedom that emerges 
that I do not take myself to be the sum total of the pleasant experiences that I have and the sum total of my capacity to get rid of the unpleasant experiences that I have. There's a movement from identification with the content of what one is experiencing to being able to see it in process and in flow without grasping onto things being a particular way. If the only thing that we know ourselves to be is what we're experiencing, the immediacy of what we're experiencing, the pleasant contact or the unpleasant contact that we're experiencing, then it is inevitable that we're going to want to have nice, pleasant experiences. And we're going to want to get rid of everything that's not nice and not pleasant. We're going to want to get rid of the feeling of feeling hopeless or helpless or overwhelmed. We want to get rid of the feeling of feeling confused or depressed. We're going to want to get rid of the painful sensations in our body because we've identified them as being who we are. But when we're able to see that nature is arising in awareness, is known in awareness, exists in awareness, and ceases in awareness, and isn't who I am, that who I am has much more to do with this vast, empty, spacious, timeless, ever-present, unfabricated mind, being, all-pervasive awareness, then my fundamental relationship with what arises begins to start shifting. But the key to making this transition is the goodness that we feel ourselves connected to. It's not an abstract seventh chakra blowout that happens. And that capacity to see things in that way then absolutely gives us the strength and the power to be with the stuff that's arising that is so incredibly challenging. As well as gives us the clarity to know what our limits are. I'm one person. What can I do? So, as I said in the beginning, you know, the reflections that I give very much a reflection. They're not any kind of insistence that you believe a word that I say. In fact, I'd be really distressed if I came out of a Dhamma talk and I heard that people believed what I said. But hopefully there's some possibility that there are things that are shared in a way that touches something which is true and resonates for you and supports your own inquiry, your own aspiration, your own sense of path and practice. And if I speak in a way that doesn't have no resonance, then just leave it. Leave it with me. Leave it in the space. There's not any need at all to touch it. But this other territory, you know, the resistance bit, requires some care to figure out whether this is not anything that's useful or whether this actually is a key to something that's really important. Take some discernment. I'd like to stop there. And I so deeply appreciate your attention and the interest to wake up. Because to me, it's not your attention on me. It's your attention on awakening. And I value that. I respect that. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.